Good evening, and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology is the man without a face. It's Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? All right? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm currently basking in my glory of being quoted in a CNN article last week. You hit the big time, and as the kids are saying these days, it went viral. Yeah, in the most minor way possible on a CNN article about the Transformers franchise, which was published at about 8pm on a Sunday night. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Did you have you had many requests? For, have you had like journalists kind of camping outside your door who want to, your hot take on uh, what was it the announcement that there's going to be like eight new Transformers films or something? It was going to be four, and so I tweeted four more Transformers movies. I'm not sure I have that much hate left in me. Yeah, I mean, just the idea of four more Transformers films. I mean, who is what? Have you ever met anyone personally who likes those movies? Uh, I've met people who liked the first one and very few who would defend the subsequent ones. Mm, yeah, Cause I, but then I, the, that last one did like a billion and a half dollars or something stupid. Like, you know, people aren't watching it. I just don't know who. Yeah, I think it's just Michael Bay with his kind of studio back to largesse just renting out theatres. Mm, yeah. That is hubris on a grand scale. <laughs> it's been a busy week, as as per usual in the world of film. I was very excited this week to see uh, the trailer for the new Coen Brothers film, which is called Hail Caesar! Exclamation mark, which, from the looks of it, uh, A, has got probably one of the best casts ever assembled, and B, looks like a giddy romp. Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm a little bit wary of wacky Coens just because of Burn After Reading, where... Uh, ironically, I was burnt by that one. I mean, it's not a terrible film, but I, I remember it had a amazing trailer that got me very, very excited about the cast. And then when I watched it, it was just kind of a wet squib. But this one does look to be kind of more in their wheelhouse and that, you know, it's a caper film. It's set in period, particularly, I think, the 50s. It's based kind of loosely on a real guy, Eddie Mannix, who was the kind of fixer for one of the studios back in the day by which by which I mean he was te- he was called a producer but he actually just went around and solved people's problems uh, and like you say that cast is uh, pretty incredible and it's nice to see them kind of in the same way that inside Lewin Davis seemed like quite a big uh, drastic shift after True Grit which was obviously kind of a very accessible film and their biggest hit to date for them to go completely in the other direction and just do this kind of big what looks like a very big and kind of broad isn't probably the right word but certainly kind of a comedy that stream screams this will be a fun time mm. and it's good to see them kind of spicing up their usual ensemble with a bit of fresh blood we've got Scarlett Johansson in there and uh, Chang Tatum uh, who I'm always pleased to see especially in, in the trailer he's dancing which uh, you know I'm a fan of yeah it does seem to be the case that they maybe didn't kind of think to use him in anything but then they obviously saw his moves in mm. the Magic Mike duology and thought, yeah. we need to get this guy in a sailor suit. Was Scarlett Johansson in The Man Who Wasn't There? Or yes, that was a, a kind of very early role for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. That's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Big news this week, which kind of came out last week, but slipped everyone by because no one was really paying attention. 
But if you think about it, it's kind of a big deal. But the studio, Paramount, you know, the one with the old mountain and the stars, they have launched their own YouTube channel. And they have made a whole bunch of their films, a kind of expansive back catalogue, available for free online, which kind of seems like an obvious thing for the studio to do. But wind back the clock five years, it's kind of a massive deal, isn't it? It is, because, I mean, anyone who has spent a few hours kind of Googling around YouTube, Googling around YouTube, searching around YouTube, uh, will know that there's a lot of kind of old classic films on YouTube for free that anyone can watch because they've lapsed into public public domain or people have just flipped the image because apparently that means that you can escape copyright or something. And it's kind of this black market of classic cinema where films that studios probably own some part of are just there and they're making no money from it. Mm. So it makes an awful lot of sense for a studio to go, well, why don't we kind of nip that in the bud, put the films on YouTube for anyone to watch films that we probably aren't going to reissue on a physical format because there wouldn't be a very big market for it. Like, I don't think any, like, I don't think Paramount is going to make a huge amount of money from re-releasing 1900 on DVD or or Blu-ray. But, you know, whack it on YouTube, all five hours of it, and put ads on it, and then just go, yeah, watch it, and and you'll at least get some kind of small stream of income from it. Yeah, it's kind of like a a different model. Like, they must have a lot of films sat around. We've talked uh, a lot about films that have never seen a DVD release, one that we're kind of huge fans of, a film called City of Hope by John Sayles. Is something that will never see the light of day on DVD because there probably isn't the demand for it. They did do that. I can't remember. Was it Warner Brothers? They did a kind of print-on-demand type service where you kind of yeah. got in contact with them and they kind of dropped you a DVD of it. I mean, that seemed ridiculous, whereas you can kind of stick it on YouTube and, like you say, for the thousands of clicks that it'll get, it'll generate a little trickle of income. Um, do you think that's the way that, you know, uh, studios will kind of post all their titles that are over a certain kind of age. I mean, obviously they'll make money from re-releasing classics like you know, Jaws or The Godfather every five, ten years in kind of big anniversary box sets. But for the films that, you know, aren't probably going to garner a nine-disc collector's edition, this seems to be the natural home for them. It, it does, and particularly in the cases of films that maybe you would only... In, in the past, you would have expected to see kind of bundled in like a, you know, five noirs for $20 or something. Mm. And you'd be like, three films you've heard of and two no one's ever heard of, but they're really good, so we'll just put them in there and we earn the rights to them. Mm. Uh, you know, putting them up on a YouTube channel where people can stream it on their computers, on their phones, which not ideal, but they can also stream it on their television. Uh, they can, you know, there are options for people to see it in a decent quality. These films that, you know, as time goes on, the market for them to be released on DVD and the chance of them getting re-released on a physical format get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it, it makes a huge amount of sense for, for for studios to kind of look at their back catalogue and say, well, let's do something with this because otherwise we're just sitting on stuff that is getting no one any money and we could put it out there and people could actually you know get to experience it. Do you think that it will be only a matter of time before the other studios follow suit? Well, I think Fox did something recently that was kind of similar where they said that they were for their... I think their hundredth anniversary they said they were going to put out like a hundred of their films on the, uh, uh, digitally for the first time ever 
uh, and they were some high profile fight, uh, titles, but mainly there were lots of these kind of small titles, some of which had never ever seen a physical release, but there you have to pay for them. And that again is moving in the same sort of direction. It may be probably is a bit more limiting because the sort of people who want to pay for those films are, you know, people who probably want to own them on DVD anyway. And that's a, an increasingly small market, but you know, going digitally is something that studios probably should have done years ago, really. But obviously, uh, up until the last five or six years, the physical media market was big enough that you didn't really have to consider doing that. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to kind of like different modes of distribution in a second. But kind of before we kind of get into the meat of this this week's episode, it's worth noting that between last week's episode and this week's episode, uh, Chantal Ackerman died. Yeah, uh, Chantal Ackerman, who was a uh, a Belgian uh, filmmaker who is probably most famous for the film uh, Jean Dielman, which is a kind of three-hour, very kind of social realist uh, drama about a woman just pretty much in her house and, and what happens to her there, and is someone who's existed on the kind of uh, avant-garde cinema scene for a very, very long time, and is often cited as someone who influenced a lot of people but who herself was not really that successful, um, you know, in terms of that I don't think she ever kind of got the kind of credit that she perhaps deserved in terms of financial remuneration. And she was always very much someone who existed on the fringes and, and didn't kind of ever break through in a big way and who uh, uh, took her own life as she was kind of going through the rounds of promoting her new film, which was a very personal uh, a very personal documentary about her mother, who was a Holocaust survivor, called No Home Movie. And uh, I think the thing that was kind of most kind of regrettable, regrettable about it was that a lot of the reporting of her death zeroed in on the fact that the film was uh, booed at a press screening in France. But when I say it was booed, a lot of people said that it was pretty much just like one guy. And people seemed to be... For some reason, they seem to be hinting at the idea that one person booing it at a screening that she did not attend kind of spurred her to kill herself, mm. which is, uh, let's face it, very irresponsible reporting. Yeah, and um, that guy who booed must feel terrible now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that was what drove her to it because I'm sure that the, the, there were probably other things going on that made it happen, but it was mm. just it just struck me as a very weird way to report the story to say oh yeah this person because one person booed decided months later to kill themselves it's just yeah it it struck me as kind of the the worst way to report on someone's untimely death imaginable Mm, especially if there's someone who's got like a back catalogue of kind of like wonderful art to uh, Mm. talk about then it seems like a shitty thing to zero in on but hey that's the press yeah so before we get into the meat of this week's episode um, we're going to talk about um, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, which we both saw this week. Uh, it's called Junan, isn't it, Ed? It is, yeah. It's a documentary, a short documentary, about 53 minutes long, that he shot earlier this year, uh, in which he and Johnny Greenwood, who is kind of his uh, frequent collaborator now, are going back nearly 10 years since they worked together on There Will Be Blood, going to India to rec- to film the recording of an album, a, co- a collaboration between Johnny Greenwood and a, a group of Indian mus- musicians. Mm. And I kind of feel weird about these types of projects because uh, I saw that Keith Richards' Netflix documentary last week, 
and that was just a kind of a, a puff piece because he's got a new record out. Mm. Whereas this felt not quite as calculated and it was more a kind of textural look at the artistic process. There was very little kind of interaction between the filmmakers and the subjects. It was very kind of hands-off and uh, kind of observing what was going on. And it's whilst the film is perhaps not the most substantial film that Paul Thomas Emerson will ever make, it's full of kind of lovely little moments. Yeah, because in addition to filming the performances, which are, are great, but, you know, that, that music in it is wonderful and it's wonderful seeing the interplay between these different musicians and them kind of the frustrations when they realise that all the electricity has been knocked out or, you know, them just kind of playing around and trying to get the right sound and things like that. You also have uh, moments when the camera follows them outside of what looks like an abandoned temple that they're recording in to go out into the streets and to like into the music shops where they're going to buy their equipment and just kind of practice with it. And it's a really, like you say, it's a really textural thing. It's, it, there's no real kind of narrative to it. It really feels more like want, someone wanting to capture the feel of a time and a place and of this specific artistic collaboration. Mm. It, it was kind of cool as well because it reminded me of, I spent some time in India as a youth and uh, it just reminded me of the, the frequent power outages and how kind of frustrating they were. That you can't literally, in even in the kind of biggest cities, you can't rely on the power for more than uh, a few hours at once. But it was kind of cool to see Paul Thomas Anderson doing something kind of like Scorsese used to do, you know, kind of break up his feature work with, with something kind of like a little in, interesting, kind of dealt with some of his preoccupations in a slightly different way. It was cool to see him work with digital as well, which is which is something different entirely. Yeah, especially because I had started to lump him in with people like uh, Tarantino and Christopher Nolan, who were just kind of like saying, oh, film is it's always got to be film, never digital, never digital, always film. Uh, because his last couple of films, he's you know, he shot them on 70mm and they were displayed that way and there was a big deal made about them being displayed in 70mm. But uh, I liked the fact that he really embraced the idea of digital, you know, using it for drones to fly around and just kind of get a, a shot of the amazing landscapes they were in. But also, I think, embracing the chaos and the freedom afforded it. You know, when people are recording, sometimes he would do things like the camera would clearly be rotating on a tripod or something and just, you know, is very composed and very uh, beautiful. But then uh, other times during a performance, the camera would just be zooming in on random things and then it would be like, oh, someone's doing something over there. Let's look at that. And um, it's quite it's quite interesting to see someone who certainly I've started to think of as someone who's very meticulous and who clearly puts a lot of thought into the composition of his films to clearly be trying something a bit more instinctual or something maybe a bit more rhythmic and letting the music and the tone of the thing be driven by what's happening rather mm. than the other way around. And it's cool as well. It's like it's almost in places unedited. Like he will be mm. filming filming a bit of a performance and. Or just as opposed to in the old, the old days, you'd shoot something else later and cut away to it to to cover the fact that you've moved the camera or something. In this film, he just picks the tripod up, moves it, and there's no attempt to cover that. That's what it is. It's a it's a very verite thing. And it, and it was interesting because it starts with a title card saying that it was filmed in February of 2015. I mm. think it was interesting just to think, oh, it's uh, cool that they clearly went from the kind of pomp and you know, the grind of award season and the Oscars and everything, and then just write, well, let's go fly off and film something else. It feels mm. like uh, it was probably quite a relief to be away from all of that. Mm, bit of a palate cleanser. Mm. Um, it was interesting. Um, 
the film came out on Mubi, which is a kind of subscription kind of service that kind of gives you a film a day curated by kind of knowledgeable folk. Do you think that something like this is going to be a potential future outlet for artists doing little kind of in-betweeny things? It certainly seems to be a very good outlet for artists who either are doing a thing that is not inherently commercial. Mm. Like you could easily see that because the album that they've made is going to come out next month and you could easily see it being packaged with the album in the same way that the, I think some versions of the Buena Vista Social Club album came with a film packaged with it Mm. because it's not something that you could really see getting a wide cinematic release because it's only 50 minutes long. And I think certainly in England, I think a film has to be 65 minutes long in order to qualify. And Mm. it feels very much like for things like that or last year, I think, or maybe earlier this year, Mubi also had the exclusive premiere of um, Lav Diaz's new film, Lav Diaz, the guy who did El Norte, the uh, end of history makes films that are kind of five, six hours long. And those are films that probably could get a theatrical release, but it'd be very small and it's clearly geared towards a small audience of cinephiles. And those are the people, the exact same people that movie over the last seven or eight years, however they've been around because they were, they, they used to be called the auteurs and they, they rebranded a few years ago. That's kind of what they're aiming at is people who really love film and who want to see things that are interesting that you aren't probably aren't going to see on Netflix. Mm. It was a cool thing as well that I noticed it was a very small crew, very small production. And it seemed to be the kind of thing that if, Paul Thomas Anderson or someone else had an idea they wanted to, it's quite an easy sell for an online distributor if they've got an ex- exclusive, you know. It's not a very costly project. It's not like, you know, forking out millions of dollars for uh, a series or a film. This looked very much like it was a plane ticket and a DSLR. Exactly. And and also it's for movie who, like I say, have been around a while, but I think really unless you listen to certain... Uh, film-specific podcasts, people probably haven't really heard of them that much. They tend to sponsor things like Battleship, Battleship Pretension and You Must Remember This, which are kind of podcasts that are very much for movie people. And this, I think, has brought their, um, a lot more attention because they're working with someone who is kind of a major filmmaker, to the extent that I saw multiple articles which basically said Paul Thomas Anderson's new film is premiering on a service you've never heard of. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting kind of uh, proposition that that could happen. I wonder if a lot more filmmakers will kind of follow suit. For our main topic uh, this week, we're going to talk about high concept. We've mentioned high concept before, um, but we're going to try and approach it from a few different angles this week. High concept is typically understood as being a kind of quite simplistic way of understanding the concept that drives a film. For example, kind of a, a premise you could sum up in a sentence like... Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito are twins. That's the classic high concept premise. But also, if you have kind of seen The Player, the Robert Altman film, it's a lot about boiling two concepts down together. It's uh, Godzilla meets Kramer versus Kramer or something, Uh, even though that is something that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. That is something we'll never see, unfortunately. But it's something that is of interest because we've been thinking this week about both high concept pitches like that and... Also, we've been trying to figure out a way to talk about filmmaking technique in the same way, haven't we, Ed? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the impetus for this was I wanted to do an episode solely about the idea of the long take, also known as a tracking shot, although they are, there are technical differences between those two things, and the way in which it attracts certain filmmakers, like Hitchcock famously was in love with the idea of trying to shoot a film in a single take, and mm. he tried to include long tracking shots or, or just long takes in all of his films wherever he could. And, you know, that as a as a topic is kind of very, very technical and sort of limiting. So I wanted to kind of include that, but also talk about kind of what you may term as USPs or gimmicks, you know, mm. to, to refer to things that are often used to sell a film and the weird point of which the marketing aspect of that, of being able to say, hey, this film unfolds in real time or it's shot in a single take melds with, you know, how much of that actually helps the artistry. Mm. So starting from a position of zero artistry, you can talk about high concept on the basis that maybe the title is the entire film. For instance, something like Snakes on a Plane or what's another one? Hobo with a Shotgun. Yeah, that's a good one. Or Zombievers, you know, Sharknado, those kind of things. That is the very highest of high concept, isn't it? Yeah, because I think the highest of high concept is you hear the title and you think, okay, I don't really need to see the film. Which Mar- is, Mars Attacks is another one. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of self-defeating in that respect. But, you know, that that's kind of the whole thing is you could, if you can sell a film through the title alone, then the idea being that that's like all the job basically done. The film itself doesn't necessarily need to be all that good. You've just already got a, a concept which uh, theoretically is uh, unimpeachable and will draw people just based on title alone. Mm. And you can extend that to talk about in, you know, today's uber cynical kind of environment of, of pre-sold products and kind of um, cross-pollination of marketing and, and all that caper. You can say that you can talk about high concept in the sense that films are now one word. For instance, Transformers. Mm. Uh, you know, people don't think it's about converting electricity, do they? They know that Transformers <laughs> is a thing and that is ultimately it. You know, you'll have people who will go and see it on the back of just that word. Yeah, and that word obviously conjures up, uh, oh, giant robots fighting each other, and that is then uh, often used as the defence of those films not being very good. Mm. Just like, oh, yeah. it's just robots fighting each other. Why should it, you know, what what were you expecting? It's like something I didn't hate. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Those films managed to make giant robots fighting each other boring, which is quite an achievement. But yeah, to what extent is high concept now because it kind of popped, very popularized in the eighties, wasn't it? Bond Simpson. I'm not sure if he actually uh, said it, but it was. He's kind of largely attributed to to coining that phrase. To what extent is it? It's still a kind of a thing. Uh, I think it's definitely, it's definitely still a thing, but it seems to have a lot less power to it because I remember last year, Edge of Tomorrow was described as Starship Troopers with crossed with Groundhog Day. Uh, which is it, it's less really kind of a selling point, more just kind of people trying to latch on to a way of selling a film based on a kind of very tricky concept. Mm. And like, I think that audience have wised up to the idea of people trying to sell them a film based on the title or based on just like a very simple premise mm. to it. And, and now it, when you see those sort of descriptions, it is it does feel more like something that's been tacked on afterwards because they have a film that should be easily sellable, but has some element of it that's a little bit tricky and odd. Do you think that it was very popular in the 80s 
because that was really the last of the kind of last days of the, the proper star system, as it were. So, for instance, you could say Tom Cruise is a fighter pilot. Tom Cruise is a cocktail barman. Tom Cruise is a race car driver. Tom Cruise is an Irish peasant. <laughs> you know, those that that is that was very much the kind of the death throes of that thing. I can't really think of too many movie stars that could apply to today other than Tom Cruise's in Starship Troopers meets Groundhog Day. Yeah, I thought you were going to say, do you think it was popular in the 80s because of cocaine? Well, that as well, because uh, as previously discussed, there was plenty of that flying around at Simpson Manor. <laughs> I do think it was probably a large part of that. I do think that at when kind of producers uh, wrested control back from directors after the, the kind of the end of the 70s and you start to see more kind of producer-driven filmmaking in the 80s, you kind of get a sense that they want to... I think it's it's kind of a reaction to the kind of cinema that had been made up to that point where they want to go, you know, we don't want complicated. Mm. We don't want difficult to describe. We want simple things. We want things like Jaws, which, you know, is is I would say is a deceptively complicated film. But, you know, basically Jaws, you saw is people get killed by a shark. Mm, and that, yeah. that's an easy thing to sell that's just kind of what they want is they look at that they look at star wars and they say okay these are very simple stories that we can sell very simply so that's what we want and we mm. want more simple straightforward stories where you can sell it either through a single tagline through an image through a 30 second tv spot and that's kind of why it becomes more amped up in the 80s because that people realize oh this works Mm. it's kind of like the opposite to, oh, there's a film called The Godfather. Oh, is it about like a kindly old man who kind of has to look <laughs> after someone? Well, no, it's kind of about a mafia kind of don, but it's also about family. And it's also kind of about America and kind of the immigrant experience in America. But yeah, come and watch it, please. <laughs> no, yeah. robots, please. I want to see them punching each other in the face. It kind of is definitely that shift away for those who kind of don't know when... Uh, the directors ruined everything in the in the nineteen seventies by making really good films and then being trusted with the keys. Never trust artists with keys; they will eventually make huge mistakes. Beautiful, kind of expensive, awful mistakes. And yeah, then we're going to get Tom Cruise as a whatever for decades afterwards. In terms of going, what you're talking about the the long take, I'm going to kind of put a question to you: At what point does a long take? become grandstanding uh, i would say kind of the big example for this for me would be rope because rope the, the hitchcock film which famously is shot in i think nine ten minute increments to make it seem as if they are shooting the film in a single take which obviously at the time was uh, technically impossible because if you were shooting on film the reels only lasted 10 minutes so you had to get it all so they had to kind of think of ingenious ways of kind of resolving that problem by for example have the having the camera go into someone's back or to just kind of focus on a vase for no reason and i think that in those instances not only is it kind of them trying to deal with the technical limitations of trying to shoot a film in a single take when you can't physically do that it's also drawing attention to the fact that that's what they're doing by trying to hide the cuts they have to do these kind of very ostentatious things that make you go oh that's odd and kind of break you out of it Mm. i have to say that i find rope to be a real chore Mm. and i actually think it's a 
pretty bad film. It's one of my least favorite Hitchcock films because it really doesn't. They obviously went for something that was a stage play to kind of give them the kind of scope to kind of keep it all in one location and kind of a yeah, small cast and and kind of keep it kind of like a chamber piece, as it were. So the material would kind of suit the, the method they'd chosen to tell the story. But that's also its greatest limitation because the film is so stagey and, and so kind of like staid and boring. Um, you think, well, this would be awesome if I was watching the play of this, but I'm not. I'm watching a really kind of weirdly filmed play of this, and that's not cool. Yeah, I think the main saving grace of it is that uh, James Stewart is really good in it. Mm, and it, that... he does a, and it is one of the first roles he did at when after he came back from the war where you start to see him really shedding off of his kind of pre-war image of kind of being America's daffy boyfriend. Mm. You know, he he is a very kind of cynical and mean character in that film. And that's kind of the saving grace for me is like whenever I think of that film, I think of him and how good he is. But whenever you watch it, it is a chore. And you do think this would be like the play of this was probably really great. And a film version of this would also probably be really good if like Hitchcock wasn't adhering to kind of this obsession that he had with trying to make a film in a single take. And it's, it's an, it's an interesting experiment that fails, which is interesting because that kind of put, makes it for me kind of the same as Gus Van Zandt's psycho, <laughs> mm. in, which is again, is kind of a, someone trying to do an experiment, which then just happened to be released as like a mainstream film. Yeah. It's that's it. When does a formal experiment become a gimmick? Because you could say something like, uh, the appeal of seeing a film, for example, like uh, Russian Ark, which mm. is a film that's shot in one take. It was one of the kind of when digital cameras became very popular and when they started to become better quality than mini DV. Um, it was a film that was shot at kind of a, an opulent, quite lush kind of setting, uh, period setting, all done in one take. And that was how it was sold to people. But I'm not sure whether it was sold to people because they didn't want to say, hey, do you want to come watch this film about Russian aristocrats in like the 1800s? Because no one's going to say yes to that. that. That is pretty much the thing that people mention about it. And mm. like that is... Because I've, I've tried to watch Russian Ark probably about seven times because it's on Netflix or it's often on Netflix. And I kind of think, maybe this time. And you get about 15 minutes in and it is fucking dull. <laughs> it is... <laughs> interminable to watch and like the 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 fact it's all shot in a single take and the scale of it which it does come across in like the first 10 minutes is there are lots of people milling around that it's this great setting and everything and the camera is having to follow this guy go around as he talks about russian history and you're like oh this is all very impressive but like that wears very thin very very quickly and the novelty of seeing a film shot in a single take like that you know, it has to be sustained by something a bit more than just, oh, this is very pretty. Like, there's a film that I think is doing festivals now called Victoria, which is a German film that is shot in a single take as well. But there, the, the whole thing about it is it's like a crime story where this woman gets involved in a, ba- a bank heist and the whole thing unfurls in real time and in a single shot. And that to me sounds like a more interesting version of that because you're actually having to try and do a narrative worked around this technique of shooting it in a single take and also it's longer than russian art like russian art is i think 90 minutes and uh, victoria is something like two hours and 15 minutes mm. so it's like you hear that and you think that sounds like it must have been a nightmare <laughs> but it also sounds like it may actually be you know trying to tell an interesting story mm. i always thought about russian art 
the, the, the thing that for me interests me. I've, I haven't seen the film and I'm not particularly interested in seeing the film because I realised that my interest peaked when I found out that it took them six months to rehearse it. And I think it was like 18 takes or something. The, the film yeah. you see is like take 16 out of 18 or whatever. And that to me is interesting. Whereas the actual end product isn't. Yeah, it's like that that thing where it, it's a film that's more interesting to read about than it is to watch. Mm. Or, or it'd be more interesting to watch the documentary about the making of Russian Ark than it would ever be to watch Russian Ark, just because there is there's so much that goes into it. And it's just so, for me, so little like benefit or gain for the audience. So if we talk about the long take uh, in the sense of when it's not a gimmick, and it's not a kind of like a ridiculous stylistic flourish. Um, what examples can you think of as being uh, the kind of best? I mean, my number one would probably be the Goodfellas shot, which is amazing because, uh, yes, it's technically a kind of a bravado sequence. Um, and like they say in Swingers, a film in which they recreate that shot. <laughs> Where do they hide all the lights? <laughs> which is uh, kind of um, uh, the main thing that baffles me from a filmmaking perspective. And, you know, how they kind of keep it consistent and everything. But also, it's absolutely perfect. It's the point in the film in which Lorraine Bracco's character is kind of fully being immersed in this world of money and the the, the glamour and the glitz that goes along with being a kind of a wise guy. And, you know, follows them arriving at the Copa and bypassing the queue and working their way through uh, the kitchens, uh, kind of the privilege of him handing money off to all the people and then finding the best seat in the house. And it's a beautiful way of kind of bringing that idea and how she, Karen Hill must have felt at that time uh, to life. And that's kind of really awesome. What examples can you think of where it's just tonally perfect for, you know, the, you know, it's justified using a long shot, a long elaborate sequence. The one that leaps to mind other than the Goodfellas one, which would have been my example. So thanks for taking that. No, no um, <laughs> is uh, the opening of Boogie Nights mm. uh, going back to Paul Thomas Anderson which starts with kind of the Boogie Nights title on a marquee and then it kind of lowers itself down and then follows pretty much all of the principal characters as they're at this nightclub. And it's, uh, you know, it's very technically impressive because you're you're going around this nightclub and you're obviously just kind of zooming in and focusing on all these different characters. And it is kind of a bravura opening. It's a young director just kind of announcing himself in a kind of a very a very big way. But also it's kind of the perfect way to introduce you to all of these characters by putting them in a situation in which they're all very comfortable and they're all there at the same time. And you get a sense, you don't obviously don't get a complete sense of how they all relate to each other, but you get enough of a sense that you kind of, that it, again, it immerses you in this world kind of from the off and you can kind of think, okay, yeah, I've got track of all these characters. I kind of know how they all relate to each other. And then, you know, it can, and then it ends up focusing on Mark Wahlberg as as Dirk Diggler and kind of thinking, okay, so this is our this is our guy, and we're going to kind of learn more about these other people as it goes along. Mm, yeah, it's quite a nice way of kind of tying all those strands together. But yeah, it's interesting just thinking about Goodfellas, the the contrast of that moment where in Karen Hill's life she's kind of being seduced by the glitz and glamour of the lifestyle. In the towards the end of the film, when the whole thing's becoming you know, terrible. The whole film is very fragmented. The editing is very fast. It's very kind of choppy and disorientating. And that is what we call film grammar. 
uh, ladies mm. and gentlemen. And that's how you make a movie. Another example of which I can think of is the opening of Touch of Evil, which for a long time was the kind of the watermark of tracking shots, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and also that is a great example of something that... Because I think there are two kinds of these kind of long shots, which are ones that are just basically people going, hey, look what I can do. And people saying, hey, look what I can do. And also this has a point. Mm. Um, because they're all they're all kind of showing off a little bit if you're doing a long if you're doing a long take except in the case of um, like older films just because the way films used to be shot was that you would have people talking in long long takes for a very long time because people really hadn't figured out editing at that point Mm. Um, I remember when we were talking about the setup how the setup has that and it's not really showing off the fact that it has these really long takes it's just like yeah this is how we shot movies in 1949 but yeah like uh, Touch of Evil the whole thing is it starts with a shot of someone putting a bomb into the back of the car and then it kind of follows the car and then it drifts off and off and follows uh, Charlton Heston and Janet Lee. Yes. Is that right? Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. As they're, they're walking and talking and then the car kind of drives past them at this border and then it goes away and then it ends with the car exploding and it's about five minutes. And the, the whole thing about it is putting the bomb in there creates the, the suspense and the tension because, you know, that bomb's going to detonate at some point and then by just following these characters in an unbroken take and establishing that the bomb's going to go off in a few minutes, it ups the tension of what otherwise is actually just a scene of two people walking and having a conversation. Mm-hmm. I think keeping uh, real time and unbroken takes really can help ratchet tension up. The good example I can think of uh, where that works is from Old Boy, uh, where mm. we see a kind of a famous fight which uh, is t- takes place in kind of a long corridor and kind of happens in one full-length, unbroken take. And when, especially when it's like physical, you get you kind of uh, immediately immersed in how hard it must be for the actors to do it. And then because it's unbroken, you're not cutting away to anything. It's also pretty fucking intense. Yeah, and also it's interesting how that having it in a single take allows it to kind of go through different tones even though the camera just kind of moves from side to side like a scrolling beat-em-up because there are times when it's tense and it's scary and you're thinking oh god this is terrible and at a certain point it kind of becomes funny (laughs) because Mm. like the guys who just keep getting up and you can tell that uh Choi Min-sik is knackered Mm. but he still has to kind of smash one of them in the head with a hammer and you know and the, the that is just a thing that you also kind of see in the to put it in the, the realm of television the uh, fight in daredevil which mm. kind of has the same sort of quality again it's a long fight in a single take is at a certain point the uh it, it becomes slightly funny seeing people who are just really really knackered having to continue with this fight just because that's what they have to do for the the purpose of the scene yeah i mean daredevil's pretty good anyway in making fighting look exhausting and mm. like it hurts a lot rather than the kind of the superheroes kind of making a wisecrack and then knocking a bad guy out yeah. um it's sweaty and kind of grubby and long and horrible which is kind of what it would be like but then that is actually what it, they're actually doing it and that's kind of another way that the kind of um filmmakers uh use long shots is to kind of actually show hey we're doing this for real yeah, that's that's one of the things, uh, for example, in some of Tony Jaa's films, like Ong Bak has a couple of scenes like that where, you know, the fights are going on for a really long time and they, they hold on it because A, it allows you to see the choreography a little more than if you're just constantly cutting in insert shots. 
but also because there is a there is a level of just kind of going hey this is a fucking insane thing we're doing <laughs> you know appreciate it yeah i mean it, that i mean that's as old as time i mean go back to uh fred astaire films he didn't want his sequences cut at all and there was a was it famously he did uh, is it Finney and rainbow the film he did with francis ford coppola uh, yes. that was the first time he allowed uh cut away to his feet which is insane and it's because you know they're going to choreograph it and you're going to watch it and it's going to be you're going to see the whole thing rather than you know a very kind of fragmented version of it and plus obviously in the olden days you know cameras didn't they were big they were like the size of a ford fiesta you couldn't really move them uh, very easily they were kind of big loud crunky things and you couldn't kind of whip them on cranes and steady cams and all sorts that you can now so it was it was kind of part of the the language of film back then it was longer takes and it was uh, less it was kind of a bit more static you just remind me uh, in terms of talking about long takes that kind of are demanding on the actors one of the things i really liked about birdman was that those long takes i mean people are, when people talk about long takes they always focus on the technical aspects it's like the choreography has to be just so and you know things are, have to be very technical but in that in the case of things like you know movie actors are used to scenes being broken down mm. and the idea that okay the camera's going to be on this guy for a bit so you know i have to act with him but maybe i don't need to have to put too much effort into my physicality for this scene because they're just shooting the reaction and everything like that whereas in birdman because every take is really long all these guys who are used to that kind of more fragmentary version of filmmaking have to treat it as if they're on stage but still have to take account of where the camera is and it seems like a very interesting for me what was interesting about that film was it kind of melded the technical requirements of filmmaking with the kind of endurance of and the physicality of being on stage the kind of the full body acting that you need to do on stage because if you've got an audience watching you you can't kind of slack off for a bit mm, yeah you're never off um it was funny that when birdman came out they said that like the person who flubbed their lines the least times or made the least mistakes was uh, Zach Galifianakis, mm. which uh, kind of in that cast, I thought he would be uh, the clown prince of uh, fuck-ups, <laughs> but apparently he was flawless throughout, which is interesting given you know his background in kind of you know, live comedy, I guess. I think once you've traded jokes with the President of the United States, yeah, you're probably uh, not so nervous. Yeah, yeah, you're not so nervous at all. In terms of other kind of formal experiments, and you know, we talked about Russian arc, a film that is entirely shot in uh, one take. Is there any other examples you can think of where at a certain point it kind of goes beyond being a formal experiment and does become a gimmick? Yeah, a film from earlier this year, a horror film called Unfriended kind of has that. Because mm-hmm. that was the film where it's shot like it's a Skype call. Oh, God. Uh, which is done in a single take because... There, the it's a film of a computer screen and people kind of going in and out and everything like that, and it is kind of a very interesting experiment in the idea of going, well, let's make a film as if people are really on a group Skype call and things are happening around them, but then the fact that it's a horror film kind of hurts in that regard because for me that approach is actually quite an avant-garde way to approach making a film, which mm. then like because it reminded me a little bit of when they were filming, I think, the fourth Transformers movie, someone made a kind of a documentary about it just using footage people had shot on their phones and uploaded to YouTube of the filming location. 
and it was this kind of very interesting experiment in how a showing how a major uh, a major hollywood production interrupts the life of a city in this case chicago and that to me seems like a more interesting use of that technology whereas just kind of shooting something in that way and then releasing it and then graphic having it be kind of a really rubbish horror film is kind of it seems a waste of a very interesting approach to the story mm. i remember in the kind of post blair witch years and um, mm. there was a film called the collinswood incident i think it was called and it's a film that is is pretty much you just reminded me it was pretty much a skype call but there was a point in which someone had to go and investigate their attic and they took their laptop with them because obviously it was there was no phones, uh, no Skype phones. Then it was it was kind of there was bits of it that were kind of quite effective and quite kind of nice. And then at the end, it was all completely ruined. Where they were like, "I have to go upstairs in the attic and investigate this. I'll take my laptop," <laughs> which you you know you probably wouldn't do. Um, I was reminded earlier today of um, we talked about Alfred Hitchcock a lot, a man who kind of did a lot of kind of quite exceptional technical things with film but managed to kind of meld them to kind of story and tone um, that he was planning on uh, making a film and he always wanted to do it, but he couldn't find the right way to squeeze it in. He wanted the opening of the film to be a car making plant and the camera would follow uh, the car from being nothing along the assembly line to being, you know, rolled off the, 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 the kind of the, the factory line at the end and then the boot being opened and there being a body inside. Which always struck me as perhaps the greatest opening to a film that would surely be terrible. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like the sort of thing where, unless it had credits rolling over it, mm. it'd be pretty unendurable. I think Spielberg tried to do that in Minority Report because there is a kind of a fist fight in a car building plant where Tom Cruise and whoever's chasing him are kind of having to dodge around the car that's been built around them, and I think that was him trying to. Uh, on a Hitchcock's memory by doing a slightly more interesting version of that idea. Yeah, because where do you? That's a great idea. Mm. Where do you go? Where do you go from there? Yeah, I mean that. I think that's one of the things that was great about Hitchcock was he was someone who could think in kind of these these amazing images, or he had these ideas that were just kind of perfect. Like just like even just kind of silly witty things like in uh, North by Northwest when. Uh, Cary Grant is kind of being the plot of the film is being explained to him and they're on a I think an airfield and then the sound of the plane drowns out what they're saying <laughs> because he's just kind of like yeah people don't really need to know this mm. you know this is all boring exposition so let's just drown it out and then just enjoy the fun but sometimes I think he was also someone who clearly kind of knew yeah this idea probably doesn't really fit anywhere mm. in terms of kind of gimmicks uh, that started somewhere stylistically and now has just kind of fully jumped the shark. Found footage is perhaps uh, the most egregious of uh, recent trends, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's one of those ones where the, the obviously Blair Witch wasn't the first one to do it, but it was the first one that kind of became a huge hit. Mm. Uh, I wasn't just kind of confined to the to things like Cannibal Holocaust or the uh, the last broadcast where there were films that had done it before but were very much kind of niche things that were only really for genre fans the the Blair Witch became unbelievably huge like mm. it's, it's 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 incredible how huge that film was at the time and the kind of it, and then people tried to imitate it but didn't really kind of get it and then paranormal activity came along and was like even bigger and you can really see that the success of those two films 
kind of planted the seeds in a lot of people's minds that basically said hey we can make any film like this and it can look and you know we can shoot cheaply and that's a a wonderful impulse for people to kind of think hey this gives us a new way to make a film but mm. it has resulted in so much shit <laughs> and yeah. so many films where the found footage technique isn't really justified in any way they just kind of include it because it's kind of cheap and marketable mm. i remember when cloverfield came out mm. and everyone was saying you know who would keep filming this who would keep filming this and that was as if they were saying you know this is now getting to the point where it's unrealistic yes you're all at a party and then you know a giant monster comes in but you'd put the camera down but as time's moved on and we have got to the age of everyone having camera phones um i could absolutely 100 percent say that people would be filming it no matter what happened yeah, and also, like, obviously Cloverfield has a lot of 9-11 imagery in it and, and kind of draws upon kind of that shared trauma for a lot of its power. And, you know, people did keep filming in 9-11. There's lots of videos that showed that people did do that. And maybe Cloverfield, because of the nature of the story it's telling, it kind of pushes beyond that. But I don't feel it pushes... I, I, when I was watching it, I thought... I never thought that it kind of was egregious with it. It was mm. more just kind of going this is a movie we need to keep it going and i think we've established that this guy would keep filming just because you know an incredible thing is happening and and it's clearly his way of protecting himself from what's going on mm. what what i meant more is that like i think if the film would have been made now oh this he would not be the only person filming that <laughs> every single right, yeah. fucker would have their camera out pointing at this giant fish monster yeah in in clover fields it would <laughs> yeah. be a lot of a lot of people shooting all at once, and then maybe some uh, time code esque split screen. Mm. There's that kind of Louis C.K. stand up where he's kind of talking about, you know, if Jesus did come back, no one would see it, but everyone would see other people on their phones filming it, and everyone <laughs> would be there because you know, yeah, and everyone would say, "Did you see it?" No, but I got a video of it. That's kind of. I'm surprised that no one's kind of uh, done something like that, where, you know. Uh, everyone's kind of filming something and it kind of splits off and I don't want to give people ideas because found footage is it's done it's got to be done yeah I mean the only idea that I think someone should do in a kind of a big way is make a found footage horror film where it's revealed at the end that the found footage has been assembled by the killer mm. well not an idea to spoil that... a film that that is that is the last broadcast yeah I was going to say it has been done but not for a long time and I feel that people have become now so like that film came at the wrong end of of the found footage genre instead of being like one of the first it really should have come somewhere towards the end mm. where once people were used to the grammar of how those stories are told it would have some sort of genuine shock to it do you think the kind of con high concept can be applied to technical um specification you know, probably the best way of saying it but like i remember when the first film that was shot entirely on digital came out and everyone was mm. like, Oh yeah, that was shot on a kind of camcorder or whatever. Or it was good that, um, you know, uh, monsters, which was uh, Gareth Edwards or Evans film that was shot entirely on prosumer equipment for like 12 grand, things like that. Primer for another example, a film being shot on exceptionally low budget. Can you apply high concept to those things? You can in a sense, because I feel like that or something like El Mariachi or clerks. Mm hmm. Part of the concept of selling that film is the story of how they were made. Yeah. I think that the the legend that grows up around those films 
is part of the concept about it because that's not something that is kind of grafted on afterwards when clerks came out the whole thing was hey this guy maxed out his credit cards and shot a film in the place where he works and you know that was that's kind of built into the, the how it was sold or or el mariachi's like this guy made this film for seven grand by selling his body to science you know those are those are the things that catch your attention because you think wow these guys must have really believed in the story they were telling if they were willing to do that and that's kind of what draws you to them and same with primer like the first thing i heard about primer the two things i heard about primer was a it's really fucking dense and really hard to 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 figure out and two it was shot for like a couple of grand and it was most of that went on the film stock and those are the things that made you think you know wow how could someone tell a story so in depth and so kind of techie for so little money Mm, yeah and they must have only done one take of each thing because <laughs> yeah, otherwise it would have cost them like double. I saw a film. I kind of a, this is probably a case in point that proves what we're trying to say. After Sundance this year, there was a kind of announced that uh, a film had been a big hit, but they announced afterwards in the Q and A that the entire film had been shot on iPhones. Um, uh, Tangerine. And, Tangerine is that the film? And I yeah. was I was kind of like, well, that's kind of cool because. They didn't say it before the film uh, mm. came out because you know you didn't want to be oh it's the iPhone movie but now it is the iPhone movie which is a shame because like all the reviews since then have, have basically said that it's actually a really great story about you know these two two transsexual people kind of existing on the fringes of society in LA and the fact it was shot on an iPhone is very incidental but that is now what people know it for and it's it is kind of a shame but at the same time that's probably the thing that is easier to get people's attention. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So high concept can apply to the actual concept in, in, in general, or it can apply to um, the kind of technical aspects of it, and it can apply to the very medium itself, which is kind of interesting. I kind of didn't really think we'd kind of end up here, but we have. That's weird. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting because I think that is the point of filmmaking where artistry and marketing both kind of clash the most Mm. because there are things where you know something like unfriended where it's clearly they came with the idea and they built a film around it and and but there are other cases like cloverfield where you kind of look at it and you think there is a very real artistic reason for shooting the film this way because it's trying to tell a story that we are very familiar with in a way that people that is new and fresh and interesting and there again you kind of think that's a very easy way to sell it, but it's also a way that's integral to the story that's being told. And, you know, the, the where marketing and artistry meet there, it's kind of very hard to untangle them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So that's high concept in, in from many different angles. We're going to move on to Shot Reverse Shot Recommends. Uh, what have you got this week, Ed? I have a film that I've been wanting to see for a little while because it's been uh, a film that People I follow on Twitter have talked about it a lot, particularly uh, Miriam Bale. She has kind of talked about it a fair bit. And uh, it aired on TCM a few months ago, and I recorded it and only just got around to watching it. It's a film called Wonder, which is a film from 1970, directed and written by Barbara Loden, who is uh, regrettably most famous for being Elia Kazan- Kazan's wife, because uh, she only made one film as a writer-director and then uh, died tragically young from, young from uh, cancer. And it's a story about a kind of woman who 
uh, pretty much abandons her family who kind of is kind of dissolute and just kind of drinks all the time who falls in with a man who she initially thinks is a kind of bar owner but turns out to be a guy who was robbing the bar that she happened to wander into and she and him kind of go on this sort of adventure together where he's kind of thinking of places to rob and she kind of ends up being his accomplice but it's shot in the most like if you if you said to me the term documentary realism the film is shot in the most documentary realist way I've ever seen to the extent that you know you could kind of take out the plot elements and say this is just a documentary about this woman's life and it would be impossible to tell the difference and it is such a kind of pure distillation of storytelling and you know just no 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 thrills no uh chills no belly aches no uh, there, <laughs> there there is it is literally just kind of saying this is a story and presenting it in the most kind of plain unvarnished way possible and it is really powerful through that because it feels like you're just watching real life and it feels true even though you know that same story you could tell it in a very kind of sensationalized way but she does it in a way did it in a way that was so kind of you know it did have a real truth and a real authenticity to it that uh, you don't really see very often and it also does something which i really like which is that it doesn't really kind of elaborate on why wanda played by uh, Barbara Loden herself, why she's, you know, why she's abandoned her family, why she would think to kind of go away with this guy. It's just kind of more kind of trusting the audience to, to kind of figure out where her sense of ennui may come from and why she would do these things. And it, there, there is a kind of an intelligence to it that I think is kind of very rare. I think it's it's a very a great shame that the film's kind of fallen into obscurity. And it's really good that now, for some reason, I think mainly because TC, the people TCM have on to talk about these kind of films uh, tend to pick it a lot. They, they seem to be airing it two or three times a year, and I hope that people kind of see it and pay more attention to it because it's a kind of a lost gem of American uh, cinema. Mm. Um, sounds very, very interesting. I'm going to pick something inspired by you just mentioning El Mariachi. I'm going to pick uh, Robert Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Crew, uh, which is uh, an amazing read if you ever wanted to find out the story behind that film. But also if you ever want to kind of kind of discover what someone was like when they had a kind of a real ethos that ultimately let them down. Uh, <laughs> because in in the book he details the fact that, you know, why why do studios waste all this money when you can do it all yourself? And, you know, it even kind of breaks down the fact that, you know, he's kind of uh, offered to be wined and dined by all these executives and he's just like actually can we just go to the burger bar and give me the money and he'll send it home to his wife uh, in the post uh, to kind of help support them and it's kind of like a call and you're like oh man this guy's got some great ideas and then you know 20 years down the line we've had to live with all the films he's made with complete control <laughs> doing everything himself and uh yeah uh, we got pretty tired of that quickly but the book's great man especially when he's detailing the, you know the whole medical trials thing and the guy who plays the villain in our mariachi was like the guy who was in the bunk next to him. And yeah, he just wanted some white dude to, to like be in this film for the Mexicans. And <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a funny and it's kind of revealing. And you read it and you think, oh man, this guy is pretty fucking right on. And then you see Once Upon a Time in Mexico and you think, oh, I want to kill myself. <laughs> so yeah, I'd recommend reading it because it's a cool little kind of time capsule of uh, when Robert Rodriguez was genuinely exciting. And then obviously, yeah. Planet Terror. Oh, it was actually all right, I guess. It was kind of fun. But yeah, the Sin City movies, not so much. Uh, Spy Kids 19 or whatever he's on. Lava Boy and Shark Girl. Yeah, well, I'm done. I'm done. And that's the end of this week. 
uh, leaves me to say thanks for listening. And uh, if you like the show, subscribe to us on the iTunes. Uh, we're also on Stitcher Smart Radio and uh, Player FM. We're also on Twitter and Facebook where you can find us, contact us and shoot us any questions you've got. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking about something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>